0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Authenticum. My name is Dan Fagan. The usual MC, Mike Tober, is off on retreat with his wife. And so Mike asked me to step in to introduce uh, our speaker. Uh, Tonight's speaker is Dr. Daniel Wagner. Uh, Daniel has spoken here before at Authenticum. He is a philosopher, associate professor, and chair of the philosophy department at Aquinas College. He's a parishioner at Sacred Heart here and has four beautiful children. And a wife, I think, as well. (laughs) Father Rod will lead us in prayer. As Dan said, Mike's away on retreat, and so let's pray through the intercession of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, in the beginning was the word halogos, your plan for all creation, your plan for truth and beauty and goodness. We give you thanks for revealing your word to us and to helping us imitate him on a daily basis by the grace we received through baptism. Help us during this time to open our hearts to the wisdom that you desire to reveal to us and to enlighten our minds through this lecture we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hello. Good evening. Uh, First, I want to thank uh, Father Ron, Sacred Heart uh, Parish and Academy, and also Michael Tober for having me speak tonight. Um, It's an honor. In the fall of 2018, uh, some might recall here, I, was a, I gave an authenticum lecture. I was entitled, Aristotle on Nature, Ancient Source of Catharsis for the Lived Nihilism of Modernity. Um, that essay is now uh, published, actually, in a journal called Reality Online, which is free. Um, I recommend you check that journal out. And also, if you're of the intellectual type, um, consider submitting a publication to it. I was invited then to speak again in 2019, but technical difficulties prevented that from happening. I was ready to go, just so you know. Um, And we had to cancel. Uh, And that talk was going to be on Aristotle's conception of nature uh, as a foundation for understanding St. Thomas Aquinas' doctrine of creation. I was invited to give that same lecture again in 2020, but COVID hit, and we had to cancel again. So finally, I'm here again. Now I'm giving a different uh, talk um, at the request of Michael, but it's great to be back here again, a great honor, and to participate in this intellectual life in this parish. I just want to say what a blessing it is. Uh, we moved here five years ago, and I just, I'll just i never forget coming to the first Authenticum, and it was just, um, I was kind of, my mind was kind of blown. I've never been in a parish quite like this, so thank you. The topic of beauty in the classical tradition has received great interest of late here in Grand Rapids and in wider scholarly circles. Last week at Aquinas College, our Catholic Studies program, uh, run by Dr. John Panero, who's here, I believe, um, we had uh, James Matthew Wilson give a wonderful and enlightening talk on St. Thomas Aquinas and modern art. I was delighted to learn from Professor Wilson that Joyce, who seems to have fallen at the inception of, of modern art theory, was himself a good Thomist. I hope I'm getting that right. Um, Of course, one of the great strengths of Sacred Heart Academy's classical approach to learning is precisely its focus on an engagement with beauty. Um, The new principal at St. Stephen's School, Elizabeth Black, is also inspiring a whole new curriculum with the way of beauty. Um, Roger Scruton, made a splash with his uh, treatment of beauty around 2010. And he also has fantastic um, uh, lectures online that you can watch, or uh, uh, the BBC, I think, put them out. Um, And more recently, in 2020, Catholic University of America Press published a fine volume of articles entitled Beauty and the Good, Recovering the Classical Tradition from Plato to Duns Scotus. It's edited by Alice Ramos, and includes essays from such scholars as D.C. Schindler, Michael Pakalik, and I have to mention my dear friend, Daniel De DeHaan. I myself began to think more seriously about beauty a few years ago as a result of some wonderful dialogue I had with my art historian colleague, Amanda lahi While my research as a Thomist and an Aristotelian focuses primarily on the philosophy of nature in connection with ethics and theology, I'm yet in a position, I think, to say something important about beauty in the classical tradition. This is because for Plato, Aristotle, and also St. Thomas Aquinas, the good and beauty have a certain equivalence, identity, and convertibility, as they're both intelligible aspects of nature, being, or reality. In fact, as we will see, there's often a difficulty in translating Plato and Aristotle um, on the good and the beautiful. The term they use often is the same one, tocalon. The actual title of my paper now. Michael wouldn't let me give a longer title, but here's what it really is. It's on the handout. If you don't have a handout, there might be some floating around. You might want to grab one. It's gonna be a tour through the text. That's my plan. Plato and Aristotle on nature, the true, the good, and the beautiful. You really can't talk about one of those concepts without talking about another. What I will focus on here is the connective meaning between being as nature And moral good with what we now call aesthetic value, right? What is beautiful or ugly. Um, So we have the term aesthetics in English, which is from the Greek word aesthesis. Uh, This is on your handout. So I kind of have like a mini lexicon of terms that I think are important for thinking about beauty in these thinkers. That's at the beginning. And then I have a list of, of texts, Okay. So I have an entry on aesthetics, eisthesis, and aesthetics. Aesthetics is now known as a branch of philosophy treating art and our experience and valuation of art and also the natural environment. By its various definitions and uses in thinkers like Plato and Aristotle, uh, we know that it means, uh, eisthesis means sense perception or sensation. Of course, what is sense perception or sensation? Its meaning includes the physical organs of sensation, uh, the object sensed, the aisteton, um and also the mental or intellectual interpretation of the object sense. All of this at the same time, so isthesis is a fairly complicated concept. So in thinking of the meaning of this ancient Greek term, think of some object in the environment being made present to your awareness by the medium of an organ, as in color and shape by the seeing eyes, the tactile by the touching fingers, what is smelled by the nose and what is heard by the hearing ears or what is tasted by the tongue. Further, think of your sense-perceptive experience of the meaning of the object in relation to yourself as attractive or pleasurable or as repulsive or painful. And then the meaning of the object in itself without a relation to you. We're doing all of that in sense perception. So, for example, isthesis, sense perception, means... Seeing the mountain spring as clear and flowing, smelling it as odorless and feeling it as cool, hearing it as tinkling, tasting it as perhaps milky, sweet, salty, or bitter, depending on mineral content, and your interpretation of the stream as fluid that will clench your thirst and cool you, so it's attractive. Finally, your understanding of the stream itself as a water. Maybe you're thinking it's h 20 In treating aesthetic value, then, we're interested in what we perceive to be good and attractive or bad and repulsive through our sense-perceptive understanding of the environment. My primary goal here is to shed light on what Plato and Aristotle mean by what is aesthetically valuable in art, that is, what is beautiful in the arts, by connecting their accounts of how we know beauty in sense-perceptive acts to their accounts of how we know the good and nature as being of primary importance, or the takeaway, if you will, is that by connecting beauty to the good and nature, Plato and Aristotle provide us with an objective criteria for aesthetic value. Whereas we now tend to think of beauty and often ethical value as merely subjective, individualistic, uh, uh, internal preference, having nothing to do with what is good or right in an objective sense, this was not so for these philosophers. In our skepticism about knowledge and the good and beauty, we are now often left with no objective moral values as the basis for ethics and human flourishing, and no shared or communal artistic meaning in and for higher human culture. The totalitarianism of Stalin is as good as a republican democracy, and Duchamp's urinal, well, I guess they call it the fountain. Uh, it's a piece of modern art that's, that's a, a, a a urinal, that's it, with a name that he pasted to the side of it. Um, that's as good and beautiful as Raphael's The School of Athens or Botticelli's The Birth of Venus. Looking back to Plato and Aristotle, this paper hopes to recover and rationally defend what modernity has lost: the unity of what is good and beautiful. or Talk alone. So now we will. I will. I will commence to treat Plato, and then I will treat. Aristotle on this issue. I will have much more to say about Plato. In fact, I hope I can finish, no, I hope I can get through Aristotle. Um, And and, uh, and I'll finish with a little bit on St. Thomas Aquinas, because that's part of what brought me back to Plato and Aristotle in the first place, as I was seeking understanding of St. Thomas. Plato. Plato's most famous treatment of aesthetic value comes in the Republic. The Republic treats as its primary subject the meaning of justice as a virtue of the human soul. It is the clear intent of the work to show how to show that the human good or flourishing and happiness can only be achieved where the person forms and acts out the virtuous habit of being just. In the individual, justice means a harmony where the rational aspect of the soul determines the emotional or spirited part and the appetitive uh, towards their ends or their goods. In this manner, each aspect obtains what is due to it and what is good, and the whole individual flourishes, which is to say that he or she achieves perfection in his essential aspects. To be unjust is to be in a state of disorder and sickness. This is in Book 4, especially where reason does not obtain its good and end, that is wisdom and no individual or society can flourish under such a condition. Plato is interested in the topic of of the arts because of the role that they play in educating or miseducating human beings in the formation either of virtuous or vicious habits. A cursory or superficial reading of the Republic will easily lead one to believe that Plato not only finds the productions of the arts valueless but he actually finds them harmful to humans as encouraging behavior that's contrary to human virtue, justice, and the human good. Then we'll see at one point he bans the poets from this good city. A closer look, however, reveals that Plato not only finds value in the arts, but that he displays himself as the artist par excellence. For Plato, all artists are poets, which is to say that they partake in poiesis, Uh, this is on your uh, lexicon, uh, or the fabrication or production of some product. While the craftsman, uh, who also produce, makes some physical product that is useful, like a bed, the poet or the artist is the one who produces an imitation. Art, then, for Plato, is defined as mimesis, or imitation, this also is on the handout, Uh, which is representation, especially by visible imagery or the oral or written word. Artists produce an icon, or an eidolon. Um, uh, uh, um, icon being the source of our term icon. That is, it's an image or a likeness of what is real in sensible form. To fully understand Plato's definition of art as mimesis, it's necessary to understand his theory of what is real, that is, ontology, and how we know it, that is, our theory of knowledge or epistemology. On what was at least Plato's approach at some time in his career, what is real is the abstract, separate, invisible, immaterial, static, or immobile, eidos, the form, this term is also on your handout. Uh, And and some of you, no doubt, have heard of Plato's famous theory of ideas or forms, and that's what I'm discussing. Eidos is from the verb eido, it means literally, thus, the look of something, although that is almost never a good translation. Someone here will probably argue with me about that. In its original use, then, it actually signified the physical form and its beauty. Thus, we have a passage from Herodotus. This is quote one, where a husband is spoken of as praising immeasurably the uh, the aidas uh, or form of his wife. In the Greek mathematical, philosophical, and medical traditions, however, the term came to be used as a classificatory concept. And this was prior to Socrates and Plato. They picked it up. In other words, thinkers working in these traditions used the term to designate itself another term, a classifying term, signifying a class of individuals. In this technical sense, Ados referred to a term or model that captured a common universal feature or an attribute, that is, to say, a definition. Um, so, Democritus uh, used geometric forms, adae, uh, to classify the various kinds of atoms that he believed were the physical foundation of reality. We have a text in the Hippocratic Corpus where ados, or form, is used to signify the generic bodily constitution of certain a certain population of women in connection with their deaths, um, the, the ancient theory of the, the humors, or the moods, uh, these are day forms, Okay, definitions. Um, note that as a classifying concept, of course, eidos, or form, is not a sensible or physical thing. Rather, it's an object of thought and invisible. Plato inherits and develops this theory of understanding by classification in terms of kind. But in his account of reality or ontology, he also reifies or makes real the idea, uh, conceiving that ideas exist as more real than things we see and touch. And I can go into his reasons for thinking this, if you would like, in the Q&A. So for example, the abstract form or ados of honeybee as a flying, stinging insect that collects nectar and pollen, produces honey, and lives in a colony, is more real than particular honeybees we perceive by isasis or sensation. Indeed, this Eidos makes the particulars to be what they are and allows us to know them as such. In dialogues like the Timaeus and the Republic, Plato further expresses the belief that these forms or ideas that make the material things to be what they are and allow us to know them as such, are themselves produced or made by a divine reality, the one, the good, or God. He's going to avoid saying that. For Plato, there are three kinds of making or producing. Uh, That is to say poiesis. First, as he expresses in Timaeus, beings of the world are produced by a divine being, a divine craftsman, a demiurge, who makes and impresses the forms of being on matter so that they exist as given to us in the sensed world. Second, there is the production that happens in the technical arts, techne. I think I didn't put this one on there, I should. Oh, no, I did, okay? The technical art of the techne is is—it's uh, an organized body of knowledge that, that produces some product. Um, as when, say, a carpenter imitates the form For example, of a bed, so as to produce the bed in the wood. Finally, there's the imitation of the poetic artist, where the artist produces the appearance, either of what God has made to be in nature through the forms, or what the artificer has produced for use, like the bed. In his critique of the poetic arts, Plato uses this theory to express what initially appears to be a pretty low estimation of the value of what we call art. Using the example of the bed, he notes that there are three ontological versions of the bed. The form or the idea, the ados, uh which is the true bed, the one that the carpenter produces in the wood, which is like the true bed, and finally the one that the painter makes, which is merely the physical appearance. The philosopher's view of art as of little value then is apparent in the fact that the poet, as an imitator, is furthest removed from the truth and reality of things. This is quote two, then, on your handout. Thus, imitation, mimetike is far from the truth. And because of this, it seems to produce everything in perfection, but it possesses a small part of each thing that it imitates, which is the image of the sensed thing. It is the fact that the imitator is so far removed from what is true and real, the separate eidos, and that the mere appearances of things do not disclose their true natures or being that leads Plato to be critical of the mimetic arts. The problem, to put it precisely, is that the artist can imitate and produce appearances without knowledge of the truth and what is being imitated. Most importantly, this means that the artist can easily go astray and produce false imitations, thus misleading a viewer or an audience. It is for this reason that Plato exiles the poet that would imitate all characters, good and bad, from the good or beautiful city. And We should say the terms good and beautiful are on the handout also, to agathon and then to uh, Um Here, the good and beautiful city is the calipolis, which is also at the end of the lexicon. right? So it's the beautiful city that he's discussing. And ironically, he bans those who would imitate what is beautiful. What poets, we must ask, is Plato concerned to ensure, have no role in the education of citizens of the good city? Those poets that present the divine or the gods as being like disgraceful humans first must be banned. That's in Book 3. In Book 10, his attack is more focused on Homer and other tragedians. The problem, Plato conveys, is that while this poet is supposed to be presenting an imitation of beautiful things, virtue, and political order, he actually knows nothing about these things. The virtues that Homer values most, of which the tragic hero Achilles is the model, would be courage and then the honor that comes with it. Um, And we could could take this as a foundation of what might be called the Greek warrior ethic. Plato and his teacher Socrates, of course, held that the highest human virtue is wisdom achieved by the perfection of the intellect. The real problem, thus, is not with the mimetic art, per se. Rather, it's that Homer, not knowing that the true good and beauty of the human lies in the invisible and immaterial perfection of the form of the mind, was incapable of imitating it properly so that his audience could be elevated in thought by the image to look with the mind at what is truly good and beautiful. This poet uses the appearance of beauty and order in images and metered words to speak and imitate falsely what he does not know, conveying that the human good rests only in courage and honor. Worse, in presenting this false image um, of reality and what is good, that is, in neglecting the virtue of wisdom, the poet appeals to the emotional part of the human soul, persuading it, Plato says, without reason. Having heard or read the Iliad, are not all boys persuaded in the spirit and emotion to love beautiful Achilles and want to want to be like him? If only in the youth of my childhood in the 80s, I could have been reading the Iliad as opposed to watching the cartoon G.I. Joe, which I myself learned was a false image and quit watching because no one ever died. And I realized there's something wrong fundamentally with this. Okay. To be sure... Plato thinks Achilles has part of virtue, courage. However, he does not display the whole of virtue in his poetic art, nor the best virtue, and to follow him down the path of the warrior is to miss the point that true human perfection is found in the exercise of the intellect. Also problematic for Plato is the fact that poetic tragedy encourages us to irrational and unhelpful levels of grief. He thinks, rather, we should turn to reason, to seek a cure in our grief. As will be shown presently, part of the meaning of beauty for Plato is what is ordered and measured. The problem with with music, that is, song and verse, that is ordered, measured, or poses, uh, or possesses meter, is that in it, the metric aspect of beauty, so it is beautiful, but it can be separated or divorced from the image being presented in the word, letter, etc. When this happens, the beauty of the order can lead us to act at an emotional and irrational level. This is harmful as it leads us away from the true virtue and what is truly good and beautiful. So, the meter of Homer's Iliad is, is, is beauty and thus attractive to behold, but is associated with an image of the good that is false and ugly. The key problem then is that the poet has the ability in this manner to produce a bad constitution or moral character in the soul of those who take in the false imitation because he does not express in it what is truly good. Thus, poetic art can corrupt, Plato says, even good people. One affected by the art of Homer, Plato holds, will have a disordered soul to the extent that he or she will not seek perfection in wisdom, and there's a lot of examples of this kind of thing, of how art can, can lead us astray. One of my favorite, more recent ones, is uh, the Lego Batman movie, okay? The, the, other, the other ones aren't good either, but that was particularly horrifying. I watched with, with one of my sons, and he knew I didn't like it. He can always tell. He hates watching movies with me. I ruined them. That's not totally true. He's, he's come around. He's actually Now he's really interested in the critique, but then he was not, and um, he asked me why I didn't like it, and I asked him, well, who's the bad guy in this movie? And his answer was Batman, only Batman's the hero, right? Well, why did he have this impression? Because the way that the director presents these characters, while well, on the one hand the Joker is a mass murderer, okay, Batman is trying to you know, save people's lives, but he also has a lot of character defects, and those are emphasized and focused on. So I knew this, and, and I was right too. Uh, my son had taken this in. Um, he agreed with me later. Okay. Um, but this is what Plato is talking about. Um, the, the image takes us somewhere that we shouldn't go. Another great example, some people, I've had arguments about this with some of my Catholic friends who, who, who like this movie and want to defend it. But Lost in Translation is another good example. I think anyway, maybe we can argue about this, that it tends to want, it, it leaves the audience to want something awful. Uh, which is what? Adultery, okay, and the breaking up of a marriage, all right? You can't really be satisfied that with at the end of it, you know? Okay, there are more examples. In fact, at the end of his discussion and critique of medic art, Plato himself qualifies that it's not intrinsically bad and that it might be offered a defense which could justify its presence in the beautiful city. This is quote three. What he says is that those who are poet, not poets, but philopoietai, or the lovers of poetic productions, should be able to defend poetry or art by reason without meter, showing not only that it's pleasing, but that it's beneficial for the constitution of the soul and the city and the life of the human being. Who is the mysterious lover of poetic productions? A careful examination, maybe not so careful, Uh, of the Republic shows that it's the philosopher Plato who has himself produced images, which we might call fables, throughout the Republic to express the truth about what is real and the good to those who might not have the intellectual training to grasp it properly. Um, Let me give a few examples of the more clear examples. Uh, He employs the image. I like the term fable. It's often referred to as the noble lie. But it does convey truth, so I don't think he'll, it's not a lie. Um, That the citizens of the city, the good city, came from the earth and correspond to metals in their natural functions. Uh, Bronze for the laborers uh, or those who produce material goods, silver for the the warrior class, and gold for the philosophers. This is a story they're told to help them um, um, uh, uh, stay in their mode of life and achieve the good. He uses the image of the divine good as the sun in our world and also the divided lion in the cave, this is in books 6 and 7 of The Republic, to express what he thinks is tr- the true nature of reality and our knowledge of it. In book 10, he uses the image of the human being as a man representing reason, containing within itself a lion representing the emotional and courageous part, and then that has within it a many-headed beast representing our physical appetites. For someone who apparently loathes the use of mimesis as art, he certainly has no problem making use of it himself. Plato actually considers the use of imaging, a cassia, where something less known is grasped by association with something more known, a form of knowledge. And he expresses this in his famous divided line passage. It's the lowest form of knowledge, albeit, but it is useful and important in the process of learning. In fact, it's the only way we have any knowledge, I think this is an important point, it's the only way we really know uh, the divine, the good, the one. It's also beautiful, which causes, he says, the forms and the rest of the world, ani, to be. So, quote four. When he employs the man line beast analogy referred to above, he has Socrates tell the character, this is the sophist Thrasymachus, who is like a child who cannot understand, well, worse, he's vicious, that he will mold an image, an ikona, of the soul by word. Like a child or one of the many fettered at the bottom of the cave, Thrasymachus does not understand what knowledge and the good is in itself. However, he can understand by this image, maybe, that if this is the nature of the soul, it would be bad, harmful, disordered, unhealthy for the man representing reason to be controlled, dragged around by either of the other two aspects. What is it precisely that Plato holds to be the truth about being, and the good, and the beautiful, that the mimetic artist is supposed to imitate? He tells us, this is quote five explicitly, book ten of the Republic, is it not the case that the virtue and the beauty, sometimes Kalos has two lambdas, I don't know why, don't ask, and the proper order, maybe someone here does, and the proper order of each artificial tool, animal, and activity is nothing other than the object for which it has been produced, that's the case of the artifact, or brought into being by nature. And I have an entry on Fusis in there, um, and the term he uses is connected to that. That means to be brought into being by nature. Here, then, we are given the key to understanding beauty as it is equated with virtue, the good, and the order of things toward their artificial or natural ends or objects. How is it that we are to come to know such an order? And what precisely is it, then, that constitutes beauty? As is clear from the progression of the Republic, Plato holds that our understanding of the nature of being And the form begins with our observation of the unique functional activity of being. So at the end of book one, Socrates proposes that, like a craft, a tool, or the organ of the eye, each distinct uh, as having its own functional act ordered to a proper end, the human soul has its own functional action. And here the term that he uses for this is ergon, where we get the word ergonomic. And it's also on your handout. So some scholars think this account is irrelevant, like John Rist, I think because he's a Humean, so he doesn't accept it. I'll leave that aside, though. Virtue is a disposition of excellence that is needed for the functional act to be achieved well or completed in its end. The human ergon initially is said to be, this is what he says at the end of book one, taking care of things, ordering or ruling and deliberating, all of which imply reason and the intellect. In Book 4, this account is refined where we learn that the soul of the human has three aspects or formal powers, each with their own functional act and, and corresponding virtue. So reason corresponding to wisdom, uh, the emotional or spirited part uh, which, which corresponds to our ability to be courageous or cowardly and then the appetites which corresponds to the virtue of moderation. Having conveyed that this account... of of this Book 4 account requires more refinement, and following his account of definition or division from the Phaedrus and the Sophist, Plato then explains that we must first properly define the nature and form of the soul before we can understand what its good is. As he explains, we analytically define the human soul by expressing it as a capacity or a power ordered towards a distinct end or good. And I put the quote, uh, it's number six, from the Republic. It's a parallel to the, to the to seven and eight, which are from the Phaedrus, where he, he sets out this method of division or, or definition. I'm going to read from the Phaedrus because I like it more. But it's the same account. So uh, here in seven and eight, Socrates seeks to explain how a proper account of being of something is given by the philosopher. In both cases, and this is in the case of medicine and also in philosophical, dialectic, or understanding, one must define nature, the body in the case of the one, that is medicine, and the soul in the case of the other. That is well, then, and consider at length what both Hippocrates and true reason say concerning nature. For concerning the nature of anything whatsoever, must we not reason in this manner? First. Concerning that which we ourselves wish to be technically knowledgeable of and to be able to make another as such, we must answer as to whether it is simple or multi-form, does it have many forms, and then if it is simple, examine its capacity or power, dunamis is the term, what it can do, What, what it is naturally productive of in relation to the act it holds, or what it is in relation to the affection, the thing that acts upon it. And if it has many forms, these being numbered, as we said regarding the one, to see these and say of each of them, what is the act for which it has naturally come to be, or what is the affection for which it is naturally, and what acts upon it? This is an incredibly, I think, awkward passage, but he's trying to express something that... Uh, that. Um, is newly being expressed, at least I think, um, will later be more clear um, when, when we look at Aristotle. The being, nature, form, and so the beauty of a thing thus is understood as the intelligible order of a power or capacity to its proper end and object. What is one in being is two in relation in terms of power or end, in relation to its object and end. My, this is my, why does Plato sometimes refer to being as dyadic or two? This is why, because it's a relation, capacity to object. In the Cratylus, which treats the topic of how to properly give names, Socrates explicitly identifies tecalon, or beauty, with the exercise of a power as achieving its end or object and perfection, he suggests that the term cologne actually derives uh, from, from a verb kaleo, which means to name, because naming as a performance itself is beautiful as the work of the mind. This is quote nine. Therefore, the name of prudence is rightly the beautiful, as it pertains to just such things of perfected functional work or action. He uses a kind of compound here, hopo and, and ergon, and it's verbalized. Okay. Uh, coming into its functional action, which we also embrace, saying that they are beautiful. Um, I refer to this uh, taking inspiration from one of my uh, uh, teacher's teachers, Father William Wallace, the late Dominican um, philosopher of science um, and philosopher of nature. I refer to this as the power object model. It's a power object model of, of truth, division, definition of the good and also of the beautiful. Notice that it discloses the end, object, goal, or purpose of what is defined and expressed uh, uh, when uh, that thing that's ordered toward that obtains it, achieving its perfection and its good. And by the way, by perfection, which I'll use that term a lot, I don't mean you know uh, uh, perfection in like a sinless sense or something like that, per plus faccio, it's, it's the completion, through the action. Notice, uh, sorry, we can see then that Plato's approach to knowing the being and the form by analyzing power in relation to its proper end is already what we philosophers call teleological. That is, it's a model that seeks to define in terms of end-directed purpose, completion, goal orientation, or perfection. This point is explicit in the philibus, a later dialogue, this is in quote 10, where Plato equates the beautiful, telkalon, not only with being and what is fittingly ordered or symmetrical, but also with uh, being teleos, perfect or completed. Telos is the word where we get teleology, logos and telos, an account of perfective ends, goals, or purposes. Quote 11, which is more of a summary, Plato uses this method of division to define the human actual intellectual soul in its action of knowing. Knowledge, episteme, is defined under the genus of capacity. Indeed, he says it's the most powerful of all capacities. It's ordered toward what is or being and the form, ethos, while ignorance, which is not really a faculty at all, but a privation, is ordered toward what is not. The philosopher, the one who loves wisdom, is defined then through his capacity. It is functionally ordered to the objects of knowledge, the things that are and their forms of being, which are for it as its good, end, and perfection. Since it has a function, it can be called good when it does it well and bad when it does it poorly, as we might refer to the good or bad carpenter relative to the end goal of the carpenter, the production of the home. I'll leave aside the fact that Plato really only uses this method to define the intellectual aspect of the soul, because it seems like that's all he cares about. In the Phaedrus, Plato conveys that sight is special. So I'm coming back to aesthetic beauty now for Plato. Sight is special because it sees particular instantiations of beauty in bodies and light. Thus, beauty is referred to by Plato as what is radiant in visible things. It is also clear that beauty can be heard in a sense as it's manifest in the order or meter of words written, spoken, sung, performed. Wisdom, however, is not seen per se, so it cannot be depicted properly speaking. Yet beauty, at least what participates in it, can be perceived by the sense in a limited manner. This means that the perception and love of beauty in bodies for Plato can draw the soul Uh, up to knowledge of beauty itself, which is a first step towards the virtue of wisdom. Thus, Plato holds that eros, our erotic love, um, and attraction to the forms of physical bodies, is meant to draw us to true knowledge and understanding of what is really good and beautiful, the intellectual soul and its end form of wisdom. And he gives this account in the Phaedrus, which is a fantastic um, dialogue where he also makes a great argument against the friends with benefits conception of romance. Similarly in the symposium, Plato has Socrates and the mystical woman, the Diotima, express that love is the desire of beauty as not permanently possessed. Love itself is defined as power functionally ordered in its act towards productions that are the perfection of the body and the soul. Plato here compares the human being in possession of powers ordered towards proper ends to the state of pregnancy, which of course is a power or potential for reproduction in the animal species, including human beings. He then expresses that the power achieving its end or object is beautiful, and this is quote 12, as the Diotima says, this power and functional action of love, which is what they're talking about, is giving birth in beauty or fitting goodness both with respect to body and with respect to the soul. When male and female produce as lovers, their fruitful act is beautiful, being harmonious, ordered, and fitting for them by nature, and it is even divine as it allows the couple to participate in immortality. In the soul, however, and as it turns out, there is another higher and better kind of pregnancy, again, an image to help us understand The human intellectual soul is pregnant with the power to know, so that its object and its beauty are found in the attainment of intellectual virtue, which is more beautiful than physical children, he tells us. As in the Phaedrus and the Republic, the perception of beautiful bodies, and thus also of the mimetic arts depicting them, is primarily of instrumental value. By perceiving particular instances of physical beauty, the student of truth will be drawn toward the invisible form of beauty that is itself not perceivable, but invisible and common. The student will then be capable of turning on this form itself as an object of knowledge, and the path to true wisdom has been commenced. Again, true beauty thus is not found in the perceptible per se. Now he seems to say that it seems to me to be incompatible with his theory of the separate forms. And I've put a quote to this effect, which is number 13, just supporting this interpretation, um, where it's held that that the form is not anywhere of beauty. It's not in a place. It's not material. It's abstract, separate. OK. It took me 42 minutes to get through Plato. And I'm not even finished. Poor Aristotle. Um, What does all this tell us about beauty and aesthetic value in Plato? Let me summarize the key points. First, beauty exists as the good apprehended by knowing the nature of being. The nature of being is the form which is what is beautiful in perception. But it goes beyond perception. The form is an order of a power toward a proper object end, or goal. Thus, on Plato's account, we will value and find things pleasing or beautiful when we know them as existing, formal power in relation to their proper object or end. This also means that if you don't know, if you haven't apprehended this relationship of capacity to end, you're not going to see the beauty and find it pleasing. So you need education. What is beautiful is what is perfect in act by nature. There is beauty then in a well-made tool, which is a certain form and power ordered toward a certain action, and object. I think of myself as a child beholding this finely made knife for the first time. I didn't even know what to do with it, but I just found it pleasing to contemplate to the point of distraction. And then I cut myself very badly with it, of course. Um, and you could think the same thing with an implement of gardening or carpentering, etc. There is Uh, there is beauty in an organic thing, like an eye, which is formally constituted so as to obtain the object, the presentation of color and shape in our awareness. For Plato, the nature of the human being is such that each is ordered towards perfection in the expression of the virtues, especially wisdom. And yet, no one individual can achieve that by him or herself. In fact, by natures, humans need each other in a community with a division of labor and a system of education in order to live out their functional acts, flourish, and be happy. He gives this account in book two of the Republic. Accordingly, given the natural capacity, there is beauty in the city which comes to be by nature so that each person composing it can flu- can flourish and be happy, which is rationally ordered by its laws and education so that its people express their virtues of moderation, courage, wisdom, or prudence. Indeed, Plato calls this city again the Callipolis and indicates that it is beautiful, like a measured song or verse, calling its state or disposition a harmony. In turn, there's beauty in in the human intellectual soul in expressing these same virtues, especially, of course, in the expression of the intellectual virtue. When we perceive, then, a person like Socrates, having a soul that is just, and displaying these, these, these virtues. We cannot help if we know them but be attracted to Socrates, even in spite of his ugliness, physical ugliness. Okay? You can read about Alcibiades at the end of the symposium on that. What does this have to do with aesthetic value? The poetic and mimetic arts are of value to the extent that they can represent and image the truth about the nature of being as form, as power in relation to object or end and perfection when such an object is well obtained. So art that properly imitates nature is beautiful. The final point I want to make is simply uh, is, is forward-looking and critical, which is that Plato's theory, his, his epistemological theory, uh, makes makes it so that properly speaking per se beauty is not in the physical I think he's committed to that even if he doesn't always talk like that okay and we'll see uh, we'll see Aristotle break from this related is the fact that since he he prizes the intellectual virtue uh, over all the others to the point ex- of excluding them I think um, the emotional life is not of per se value for him, okay? So this is one of the reasons he's critical, again, of the tragedies, because he finds it a waste of our time to be in physical grief. So it might be the emotional life and the extent to which it participates in virtue, uh, for example, with moderation, it's not intrinsically valuable, I don't think, okay? It's valuable to the extent as a practice that allows us to exercise our intellects. And we'll see Aristotle has a different approach. And now I will finally get to Aristotle. 13 minutes left. I was told an hour. Like his teacher Plato, Aristotle identifies the good, to agathon, with the beautiful, to kalon. The perfective action of the intellect, which satisfies our desire to know through valid and sound reasoning, Aristotle calls beautiful in his logical works. In setting down the subject genus of the science of of politics or ethic, which are unified for him, he simply equates the human good, that's the subject of the study, with ta kala, beautiful things. The good and the beautiful are convertible, intelligible aspects of being for Aristotle. The difference between the two is that while the good pertains to the end desired in motive human action, Being is apprehended as beautiful to the extent that it's intelligibly pleasant in itself without being the aim of an action. So, for example, when I'm sick, I desire the good of health, and this is the cause of the motion, taking the medicine, changing my diet, exercising. Um, And it's the means to that good which causes movement. On the other hand, when I perceive, for example, a healthy body, qua beautiful, I rest in the pleasantness of the perceived body, as proportionately well-ordered and perfected in itself. Quote 15. Like Plato further, Aristotle holds that the forms of beauty are order, symmetry or proportion, and the definition which captures the essence and form of the being, making it to be what it is by nature. Finally, Aristotle holds that the possession and display of virtues is both good and beautiful simultaneously. Um, especially courage. All of this means, as we will see, that Aristotle agrees with Plato that beauty is constituted as the perfection of natural being, as a relation of power to object, and as, and, and this is true as an imitation in art. The Stagirite will not, however, accept his teacher's account without serious modification. Breaking from Plato, Aristotle held that the ultimate source of human knowledge is eisthesis, or sense perception, Um, Of individual beings in the world. By the capacities of sense perception, memory, and reason, human beings form abstract concepts, genus, species, difference, accident, property, of particular groups of individuals in the world. He did agree with Plato that we know these individuals by grasping their form or species, ados, and he also adopted Plato's power-object model of defining the species of being, and he does this in De Partibus Animalium, there's part of it that he rejects, I'll leave aside, it's called dichotomous division. He does not accept all of Plato's account of division, but he does accept the power object model. However, he rejects Plato's reification of the idea or forms by which we know things given to sense perception. In fact, in the categories, he tells us the individuals of the world of nature are primarily what is being, usia, or reality, and without them, we would have no ideas. For Aristotle, with respect to natural being, an eidos signifies the form or nature that exists most properly in the individuals, as the essence, making the thing to be what it is. Thus, what is most real in nature, for example, are the particular honeybees, not the abstract definitions we form of them, which nevertheless do express the form that is imminent in the particulars. Note, then, that Aristotle's epistemology already changes the meaning of what art would be as mimesis. Mimesis will not be a copy of a copy, as it was for Plato. Rather, the artist will be imitating or representing the forms of things themselves, as these come to be known through sense perception. Further, Aristotle held that the individuals existing in the world, including human beings, are not only formal features, making them belong to a certain species or kind, but they're essentially bodily or material. Of course, things that move need bodies. This doctrine is commonly called hylomorphism. It's a compound of hulae, meaning matter, and morphe, meaning form, shape. So Aristotle holds that every individual being in nature is a complex of matter and form. So he relocates, as it were, ados or form, into the individual primarily, making it to be what it is. Knowing that those with more Platonic tastes, those at the Academy, will detest the notion that all the beings of nature and bodily parts should be studied, even those that are not perceptually attractive immediately, Aristotle offers a brilliant apology for the f- scientific study of the whole of natural, generated, and perishable beings as beautiful, including those gross and icky things like flesh, blood, bones. In order to explain how even the lowest material parts of nature are good and beautiful, Aristotle connects the intelligibility of animals and their organic parts to the teleological purpose found in the exercise of their functional acts. So again, you can see he's using this ergon approach. Uh, This is quote 16. So one must not be disgusted to to undertake to investigate concerning each of the animals. There being some type of natural production and the beautiful or the fitting good, alone in all of them. For not what is by chance, but perfection, exists most of all in the functional acts of nature. And where animals have been constituted or come to be for the sake of the end and perfection, it has taken the place, that is the same thing, of the beautiful or fitting good. I'm annoying, I'm gonna translate it both ways because I think you need both. Or what is best? The organs of the body thus are beautiful in the obtainment of their end for the sake of the whole to which they belong. To the extent that flesh, blood, heart, lungs, brain, etc., are ordered to the end of the animal living and flourishing as the kind of thing it is, these parts are beautiful. Thus, and I'm taking an an example from Book 4 of Parts of Animals, When an animal like a a marsh-dwelling bird, a heron, lives out its life activities in the marsh by exercising its organic powers well, namely, moving by its long legs with clawed toes, as opposed to the short legs um, um, with webbed feet of its cousin, the duck, and nourishing itself by its distinctive, attenuated bill and long neck, this is good and beautiful. Imitation of such beauty in art, of course, will also capture the beauty of nature and be attractive to us." It's a commonly depicted animal. The doctrine of hylomorphism, in turn, has a profound consequence for how Aristotle thinks about human virtue and the human good. Because we're not merely intellectual forms, but also animals with sense-perceptive, appetitive powers and emotions by nature, Aristotle held in his ethics that habits that allow us to exercise these capacities well are really intrinsically good for us and not merely instrumentally valuable, as we saw in Plato. Thus, the moderate and courageous use of our sense-perceptive and emotional capacities is really a perfective good. By being properly measured in obtaining their objects without excess or deficiency, our animal emotional faculties cooperate and participate, as it were, in our rational, deliberate life. So, for example, it's perfective and virtuous for us to consume a healthy and pleasurable diet and to exercise And it's good that we have reactions like empathy uh, when fellow friends or humans need our aid. It's good that we become angry when we perceive injustice. And it's good that we feel joy in exercising and in perceiving our animal capacities. These are essential human powers or capacities that obtain perfection and good through their exercises. Consequently, they're beautiful too. The intellectual and moral virtues that express perfections are not only good, according to Aristotle, they are beautiful. This is immediately apparent in his famous functional account of the human good, which comes at Nicomachean Ethics 1.7. So I've put a long quote here. It's actually much longer. It's one sentence. Uh, It's twice this long Um, for Carl Sargent. It's the form of a modus ponens argument. I won't read it all. What you'll find in this passage is that he equates Kalos' um, uh, beautiful action with the good. Okay. Aristotle proceeds to identify the moral and intellectual virtues as perfective habits of the soul and body, necessary on the condition that human beings are to achieve happiness, which is obtained in the exercise of the virtues. I mentioned wisdom, prudence, temperance, courage, fortitude, and justice. In Book 10, we learn that rational contemplation is the highest and most complete, most perfect for the human being. He says it's the divine in us. In the possession and display of the exercise of each of these virtues, which constitutes the human good and happiness, there is beauty to be perceived and understood intelligibly as the measure, order, and perfection of human nature. Here, I share one of my favorite passages from Nicomachean ethics where we can see Aristotle's equation of the good and the beautiful and also its direct connection to the form and capacities that human beings possess by nature. I think this is a profound passage. It tells us a lot about the importance of education and also why it's so hard t- to, uh, to make things right when they don't start right in terms of virtue. He says, this is quote quote 18, For the many, however, the pleasures war against them on account of the fact that such are not by nature. But for those lovers of fitting or beautiful goods, hoi filo kaloi, the pleasures are pleasures by nature. So you can see a compound here of philos plus kalos, love of the beautiful. Those that love the beautiful things don't have an internal war and opposition. Because the ends that they seek are fitting for them. I love that passage. I think it's a fantastic prayer to pray that we all be hoi filo Happiness is not a radically free libertarian or Sartrean contrivance of essence and the good. It's not a subjective state obtained, although it does involve a subjective state Uh, Obtained by getting what one feels one desires, happiness is a matter of achieving the perfection that we are fitted for by nature. Happiness is an objective reality. But then, if happiness is the good, and the good is objective, and the good is convertible with beauty, it will follow that beauty is not merely a subjective state of feeling in obtaining what one wants. Beauty, rather, will be perceived and known as an objective state of reality, where being obtains the perfection to which it is ordered by nature or art imitates the same. I now have one minute. Oh, good. I'm further along than I thought. Let me just read the passage on Poiesis and I'll finish with Thomas Aquinas. This is Aristotle on the poetic arts, which he treats in the poetics. We don't have all of it. He promised to write it, we lost it. Quote 19. Tragedy, thus, is the imitation, mimesis of action that has serious weight, brought to full completion and of magnitude through compassion and fear, bringing forth a catharsis. So, in short, what he thinks is that uh, the tragedy is actually an important and valuable and beautiful art because it allows for the release, what we say, repressed emotions that we otherwise can't get out. So he finds value in it. He thinks it's good because these emotions need to obtain their object. So crying while you're watching um, Band of Brothers or Saving Private Ryan, that's cool. We can do that for Aristotle. It's perfective and good. Okay. Okay. Let me finish by just reading the quote from St. Thomas Aquinas. It's quote number 20. Just to give you an idea of why, if you want to understand what St. Thomas Aquinas Thinks he want to go back and see what Plato and Aristotle have to say. He says for beauty three things are necessary. First, integrity of perfection, for those things that are broken or lacking perfection are in virtue of this fact lacking beauty. And second, proper order or consonance. And third, clarity or splendor, so that those things brightly colored are said to be beautiful. And that's the next part of my project, and there's much more to say and eventually I'd like to ply it to art history, but I have a lot to learn on that, as you can see, because I gave very few examples. Thank you for your time and your consideration.